Please turn with me to the book of James, chapter 1. That will be reading verses 1 through 8. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy and precious word. Father, we thank you that you test us. That you do not leave us to ourselves, but that you bring trials into our lives to grow us, to strengthen us, to remove those things that should not be in our lives. Father, give us wisdom as we examine this text today. We need the Holy Spirit to apply this truth to our hearts. Father, we know that each and every person here has trials in their lives today and need wisdom to get through those trials without sin. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. James is a fascinating book. It has often been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, James was known as James the Just, and this was because of his devotion to righteousness. And this makes perfect sense because two of the the main things talked about in this letter are good works and godly behavior. There is an emphasis of living out our faith and practical obedience. And that is what we are looking at today. Living out our faith in practical obedience when it comes to experiencing trials. James says, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. The Jewish believers were most likely scattered because of persecution. Possibly due to Stephen's martyrdom, which we read about in Acts chapter 7, or persecution from Herod Agrippa, which we read about in Acts chapter 12. So James is writing this letter to Jewish believers who are scattered abroad because of persecution. And this is important to note as we look at this text today in addressing trials. His readers were familiar with trials. Even severe trials, persecution, 
poverty, being dragged before courts. James is not writing to people who have not actually experienced trials, but to people who knew severe trials. As we go through this text today, we will be answering the question, how do we respond biblically to trials? And next week, continuing on in James, I hope to answer the question, what is the wrong way to respond to trials? So we have five headings today. Elements required to respond to trials biblically. Number one, submission to Christ. Number two, joy. Number three, the purpose of trials. Number four, a desire for Christ-likeness. And number five, divine wisdom. Our first heading, submission to Christ. Verse 1, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see how James introduces himself? Take a guess what that word is there for bondservant in the Greek. Doulos. James was the brother of our Lord. And he does not introduce himself as James, the brother of Jesus, the son of God. James, a slave to Christ. A slave to Christ. James understood that the highest position that he could obtain is not to have blood relations to our Lord, but to be a slave to our Lord. Dear friends, if you are going to joyfully go through trials, you must be humbly submitted to Christ. That the person who is too proud to submit to Christ as a slave will never experience joy in trials. Responding to trials appropriately begins with having an appropriate submission to Christ. The proud man says, how dare God put me through this? The humble man says, God's will be done. This is one of the reasons why the apostles were able to suffer so much and yet remain joyful in Christ. They joyfully submitted their lives to Christ as slaves. And they were, to, they were content to go through anything the master would put them through and to even do so with joy. And this leads to our second heading, the duty of joy. Verse 2, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. What is joy? Joy can be defined as cheerfulness, as gladness, Webster's 1828 Dictionary defines joy as a delight of the mind from the consideration of the present or assured approaching possession of a good. A delight of the mind. So James is saying, count it all joy. What does it mean to count? The Greek word translated count means to consider. 
So James is saying, when you fall into various trials, do not consider those trials as occasions to be angry or to curse God or to sin against God, but consider them occasions to express joy. Dr. MacArthur points out, This is where trial here has the basic meaning of trying, testing, assaying, or proving. He says the word itself is neutral and can have the negative or positive connotations depending on the context. So a trial is a test. It is something that disturbs our, it, it disturbs us, it may disturb our peace, it, it disturbs the normal elements of our life. It tests us. And James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. He used the word various to show that there is a wide variety of tests that God put us through or allow us to go through. The Greek word actually means multicolored. In other words, the trials you face will will come in all shapes and sizes and colors. There's just a large variety. And we know that sometimes trials are large and devastating. The death of a loved one or multiple loved ones. A cancer diagnosis. Losing a house, losing a car, losing a job. But trials often come in smaller, everyday situations as well. How do you respond when you have a headache and the kids are being as loud as they can possibly be? How do you respond when your spouse does or says something to you that you don't like? How do you respond to that person who was rude to you in the store? How do you respond when the restaurant gets your order wrong for the fifth time? That seems to be more prevalent today, doesn't it? Young person, how do you respond when your friends are pressuring you to do wrong? How do you respond when everyone else is laughing at the Bible and Jesus? Mom, how do you respond when dinner is burning? And the kids are using that as the prime opportunity to misbehave. And Dad, how do you respond when you come home from work desiring to relax, but the home is in complete chaos? We all know that never happens, right? How do you respond when the kids are playing in the toilet for the fifth time? Or in my house, the 20th time? How do you respond when that car cuts you off and almost hits you? How do you respond when your car won't start in the morning? An elderly saint, how do you respond to weakness and pain that comes from aging? We could go on and on with this list, couldn't we? 
The point is that there are literally countless things that test us every single day, both large and small and everywhere in between. We should also note the word where. James, I mean, when, rather. James says, when you fall into various trials. The way he states this indicates that trials are inevitable. You will not escape them. Each and every one of us are guaranteed to face various trials throughout our entire lives. And James says these are reasons to be joyful. Dr. MacArthur says the natural human response to hardships and difficulties is rarely rejoicing. Therefore, the believer must make a conscious commitment to face trials with joy. Trials, then, are reminders to rejoice. Dear friends, have you made a conscious commitment to face trials with joy? I assure you, you will not do this on accident. If you are going to do this, you must be purposeful. In the midst of your trials, do you say to yourself, I will rejoice in this? Lloyd-Jones talks about how we need to talk to ourselves more often. Oftentimes we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. And what he means by that is you wake up in the morning and you have thoughts in your mind and you don't even know why they are there. But, but do you allow that to be the essence of, of your thought life or do you control that? When you're in the midst of a trial and it's difficult and your desire is to be angry and frustrated, do you allow whatever emotion you feel to overrule you or do you consciously make a commitment to express joy? Once again, this will not happen on accident. And we're not talking about just staying calm in our trials. We're not saying, well, I didn't respond negatively, so I, I was joyful. No. Matthew Henry says, philosophy may instruct men to be calm under their troubles, but Christianity teaches them to be joyful. There is a difference. Christ is not saying, James is not saying here, be Stoics. Don't respond to your trial. No, he's saying express joy in the midst of your trial. <clears throat> what does this look like? Does this mean that we are never allowed to have any other emotion than joy? That when we are facing a, a sad trial, we, we are not allowed to grieve? Is that what James is saying? Absolutely not. I think John Piper tells a story that illustrates this very well. One of the hardest trials in his life. Piper says, I was 28 years old and married with a two-year-old son. My mother and father were leading a tour in Israel. And I got one of those dreadful phone calls from my brother-in-law. And he said, Johnny, 
your parents were in a bus accident, and your mother is dead, and we don't know if your dad is going to make it. Piper says he, he gave his wife the facts, went to the bedroom, knelt down and wept for a long time as I had never wept before with uncontrollable sobs. And as I wept, joy kept bursting up out of the depths. Thank you, Father, that she was a spectacularly good mother to me. Thank you, Father, that I had her for 28 years. Thank you, Father, that in recent years we had cleared the air from teenage years of ingratitude. Thank you, Father, that evidently she did not suffer long but died quickly. Thank you, Father, that she is happier right now in the presence of Jesus than I am sad. And thank you, Father, that my father is still alive. Please save him. Piper goes on to say, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is not a contradiction to say that I was profoundly sorrowful and profoundly joyful at the same time. Now here's the million dollar question. Why on earth would we have joy in the midst of a difficulty? What is our motivation for this? Look at verse 3. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And this is our third heading, the purpose of trials. James tells us that having our faith tested is beneficial to us. It produces patience. Or the better translation may be endurance or perseverance or, or, or maybe even steadfastness. Some Bible translations use patience here. MacArthur notes that the Greek word is frequently translated patience, but here connotes the product or consequence of patience, which is Endurance. Douglas Moo says testing produces, first of all, perseverance. The etymology of the Greek word points to the idea of remaining under. And in this case, etymology steers us in the right direction. The picture is of a person successfully carrying a heavy load for a long time. The New Testament repeatedly emphasizes the need for Christians to cultivate this quality of perseverance or steadfastness when facing difficulty. But James suggests that trials can also produce this quality of endurance, like a muscle that becomes strong when it faces resistance, so Christians learn to remain faithful to God over the long haul only when they face difficulty. MacArthur says endurance is a permanent inner quality of strength which increases each time a trial is patiently and trustingly endured. It's, it's like lifting up a heavy weight and putting it on you. And maybe today I can only take five steps with it, but maybe next week I can take ten steps with it. And in ten years I can take a thousand steps with it. This is like spiritual weightlifting. 
As you frequently lift weights, in a proper way you get stronger. As you faithfully endure trials, you build up spiritual endurance. And you can bear more. A believer who has been walking with the Lord for many years should be able to faithfully endure trials that would almost crush the new believer. That is the essence of this. I think of a seasoned man like Polycarp, martyred for his faith. He was told to deny Christ, but what was his response? Eighty and six years have I served Christ, nor has he ever done me any wrong. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? Spoken like a man with spiritual endurance. And yes, the Holy Spirit helps in such situations, but part of our learning to endure is learning that the Holy Spirit will come with strength to us and help us. And we remain steadfast knowing that. Think of the Apostle Paul, who faithfully endured so many trials. I mean, he has a track record of trials. And this should be no surprise because when Christ saved him, what did he say? I will show you all that you must suffer. And suffer he did. But each one of them taught him spiritual endurance. So by the time he was in his last years of life, he could write an epistle like Philippians from prison, facing potential death with an overall joyful tone. That takes endurance. Paul was sitting in a prison when he wrote the words recorded in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. The one in prison is encouraging those who are free. That is the result of spiritual endurance. The apostle in chains, not knowing when his life would be taken, yet writing experientially about peace and joy. Listen to his tone in chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all joy. Dear friends, those are the words of a man who experienced in trials. Battle-hardened in a manner of speaking. And that is the fruit of spiritual endurance built up over years of trials. You don't get that way overnight. We live in a culture where we want, we want gratification immediately. And so we see a person who is where we want to be and we say, what is the one book I need to read to get to where you are? What is the one thing I need to know to get to where you are? But it takes years. It takes years of of, of practical experience, of experiential knowledge, of, of, of facing trials to grow. We often don't want trials, but this is what God uses to help us, to grow us. Notice that in our text, James says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. He says, knowing. 
This means that if we are going to rejoice in trials, we must know that our faith being tested is beneficial. If we don't actually believe that, it's not motivation to us. James appeals to the knowledge of his readers. Rejoice because you know trials are for your good. MacArthur points out that this word for knowing here carries the idea of full understanding of something that is beyond the merely factual and that often comes from personal experience. So James is saying not only do you know from Scripture that trials are for your good, but but we know experientially how God takes us through trials and sanctifies us through them and protects us in them. I'm reminded once again of that hymn that I quoted to you a couple of sermons ago from John Newton and Be Gone Unbelief. And what does Newton write? He says, His love in times past forbids me to think He will leave me at last in trouble to sink. Each sweet Ebenezer I have in review confirms His good pleasure to see me quite through. He knows. Experientially, He knows. There is this theoretical Knowledge that we can have that, yes, God works all things for his good, but then as you grow as a Christian, you know that truth experientially. You have lived it. But let us take this farther. Because this spiritual endurance in and of itself is not the end goal, but it leads to the end goal. And this is our fourth heading. A desire for Christ-likeness. Verse 4, But let endurance have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Let it have its perfect work. Don't resist. The first thing we do when we face a trial is, get this trial away from me as soon as possible. I want to be done with it. And James says, let it do its work. James is saying that the end goal is that we may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The word perfect indicates spiritual maturity, and the word complete indicates wholeness. We could summarize this with the word Christ-likeness. Being like Christ, conforming to the image of Christ is the end goal of enduring trials. MacArthur said that spiritual maturity fulfilled in Christ-likeness is the goal of endurance and perseverance. (coughs) And once again, Mu says, testing, James suggests, is intended to produce when believers respond with confidence in God and determination to endure a wholeness of Christian character that lacks nothing in the panoply of virtues that define godly character. This concern for spiritual integrity and wholeness lies at the heart of James' concern. He goes on to say, Why can believers react to trials with so strange and unexpected a response as joy? 
because we know that God uses trials to perfect our faith and make us stronger Christians. Our goal is perfection in Christ-likeness. And although we will never reach this goal, this side of eternity, we, we do not lower the bar. So that when we are facing trials, we, we say, God is using this trial to make me more like Christ, who I want to, to be like, who I perfectly want to be like. The end goal is conformity to the image of Christ, and this is a lifelong process of sanctification. But this means that unless you desire to be like Christ and to be conformed to His image, you will never like or desire to endure trials. If you hate trials, examine your relationship with Christ. Because if you desire to be like Christ, if you love Him, you will embrace those trials that make you more like Him. There was an artist who made an incredible statue of a lion. And people were amazed at the artwork. And they asked the artist, how did you do that? He said, I took my hammer and my chisel and I removed every piece of material that did not look like a lion. Difference, that is what Christ is doing. This is the purpose of trials. That those things that do not look like Christ are being chiseled away from our lives. It's painful, but it's necessary. Look at the end result. To, to be like Christ. Dear friends, I think of my own life. Kids are amazing. You might not believe this, but before I had kids, I was the most calm and patient person in the world. But through the trials of raising kids, God has revealed to me impatience, selfishness, and anger that I did not even know existed in my heart. It literally shocked me to see how impatient I could be. I guess being the, the youngest child, I never had babies around, so I, you, know, you, never, you never had to deal with that. I love the illustration that one, that one person gives. He says our hearts are like a sponge, and, and God, because of his relentless love for us, he loves to squeeze the sponge of our heart and sees what, see what comes out. That's what trials do. When we're angry and furious about something that happens, we don't blame the circumstance. It's simply God squeezing what's in our heart and bringing it to the surface so that you may see it. The idea here is that God is showing us those things that, that do not conform to the image of Christ, that we may remove them, that we may pray for them and work on them. God is showing you your anger and your selfishness and your pride. Not to show you how bad of a person you are, but to sanctify you, to grow you. 
Because he loves you. He's putting us in the furnace. Allowing the the dross of our lives to be consumed and and the gold to be refined. Listen to Peter. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Matthew Henry says. The afflictions of serious Christians are designed for the trial of their faith. God's design in afflicting His people is their probation or testing, not their destruction. Their advantage, not their ruin. A trial, as the word signifies, is an experiment or search made upon a man by some affliction to prove the value and strength of his faith. The faith of good people is tried that they themselves may have the comfort of it, God the glory of it, and others the benefit of it. The trial of faith is much more precious than the trial of gold. In both, there is a purification, a separation of the dross, and a discovery of the soundness and goodness of the things. Gold does not increase and multiply by trials in the fire. Rather, it grows less. But faith is established, improved, and multiplied by the oppositions and afflictions that it meet with. What joy we can have as Christians in our trials, knowing that they are growing us, making us more like Christ. When you think about it this way, you don't want the Lord to leave you alone. You want trials. If you were training to be an athlete, and you start lifting weights for the first time, and it hurts, it's, it's painful. Do you say, well, that hurt, I'm done with that? No. You push through it, knowing that it's for your good, and eventually you actually like the burn and the pain of lifting weights. You come to enjoy it. But that takes Endurance. So it is with the Christian life. We learn to to take joy in our trials, though they are painful, because we know what they are producing in us. And we don't need to be afraid. Because His design in this is not to harm us, but to help us. And dear friends, we know that we have a, a sovereign God who controls all things. So so that he can actually say in Romans that all things work together for the good of those who love God. He can guarantee that. He is the only one who can guarantee that that, that trials are for your good. But he has the power and the authority to do so. I'm reminded of that hymn, How Firm a Foundation. This hymn written from the perspective of God speaking to His people. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. 
For I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. Now when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flames shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Dear friends, God's plan in trials is not to harm you, but to remove the dross. God, God sends trials to your life because He loves you, not because He hates you. Remember this. We, we oftentimes think when we're facing trials that, that God must be angry with me and He hates me, so He's allowing all these things to happen to me. No, He loves you, so He is relentlessly pursuing you to make you more like Christ, the one you love. It is grace and mercy and love that brings trials your way. Not hatred. Perhaps you know and believe these things. But, but it's, still, it's just so hard. Perhaps there are trials in your life right now that seem to be defeating you. You are drowning in them. And you don't know how to make it through. You literally think, Lord, I, I, I want to trust that this is for my good, but, but I don't know what to do. I, I don't see how, how I can make it out of this trial without sinning or without distrusting you. Or I don't see how I'm going to make it through at all. And this leads to our fifth and final heading for today. What we need is divine wisdom. Verse 5, James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Dear friends, none of us are wise enough to get through our trials on our own. Stop trying. Get on your knees and beg God for wisdom. Lord, what are you trying to show me through this? Lord, how do I walk through this? What do I do next? Get on your knees and beg Him for wisdom. Don't sit there wallowing in self-pity. Get on your knees and beg Him. The wonderful thing is that we have an all-knowing all-wise God who gives us wisdom liberally and without reproach when we ask Him. We are not left to ourselves trying to figure out our trials. God gives wisdom liberally. Some translations say generously. In other words, He is not stingy when we ask Him for wisdom. And not only that, but but He gives to us without reproach. This means He won't reprimand us for asking. Go to Him again and again, and He will not reprimand you. It's hard for us to comprehend this because as humans, we're not built that way. You, You ask somebody for the same thing too many times and you're going to get reprimanded. 
But that's not how God operates. He gives liberally, and he gives without reproach. He is not going to reproach you for coming to him too many times. Lord, I know I've already prayed to you about this trial. He's not going to reproach you and say, you've already prayed about that. Don't come to me again with that. No. Without reproach. I love what MacArthur says here. The Lord will never cast even the mildest reproach on a child of his who comes seeking wisdom in trouble and testing. He will not remind us of how undeserving and unworthy we are, obvious as that might be. Nor will he chide us for not asking sooner, fully understanding that the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. Without hesitation, reluctance, or reservation, his divine wisdom will be given to us in generous abundance. You do not have to figure out your trials on your own. None of us are smart enough for that. None of us have enough wisdom. But there is an omniscient God who says, Ask me and I will give to you. And I will give to you abundantly. And I will give to you without reproach. And I'll close by saying there is a qualification to this. James says we must ask in faith with no doubting. James says, let not the, the, the doubter, the person who asks but doesn't believe, he, he shouldn't expect to receive anything from God. But believe. Do not pray for, for wisdom, thinking that, that, that God either cannot give it or will not give it to you. James says, ask with faith, no doubting, and you shall receive it. So, dear friends, how do we get through our trials in a way that pleases God? We must be fully submitted to Christ as slaves. And such submission makes us ready to endure any trial. We must look at trials as reasons to rejoice, knowing they produce endurance which leads to Christ-likeness. And when we don't understand how to endure, we must cry out to God for wisdom and believe that He will actually provide it. And Scripture says that He will. Let us pray. Dear God, we thank You that You do put us through the fiery furnace of trials. Lord, it is painful. It is uncomfortable. But we know that you do this to make us more like the one we love and adore. You do this to make us more like the one who, who we desire to be like more than anything else in the world. Help us to endure, Lord. Give us wisdom in our trials to learn and grow from them, to be strengthened by them, and to have joy in all of this.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.